We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the Barcelona Podcast, bringing you the hottest breaking stories from the Camp No. I say that every show is packed, but episode 71 in particular is really, really packed full, chock with everything. We don't even have time to really tell you where to find us on social media or anywhere else where you can leave a subscribe or a comment for the show. Just click in your show notes and we have all that information for you. Frances, what's on tap today? A lot of stuff. We've got Jason Pettigrew from pretty much everywhere in media. Uh, he's one of the most influential Barca journalists in the whole world, and he's with the podcast today, and we couldn't be any more happy. Then we've got La Ronda de Preguntas. Eugenia Caroli is joining us once again from Barcelona, and I'm from London, and so and Dan is in the United States of America in New York City. The Barcelona Podcast 71 starts right here. And we won't waste any more time. Let's get right to that La Entrevista with Jason Pettigrew. Frances, you talk to him even just today, the day that this podcast is coming out, about everything from Messi to his new book. Let's hear it now. Okay, thank you, Dan. Um, I am joined by the great Jason Pettigrew from, I want to say, pretty much everywhere. <laughs> Jason has been working for Marca, Yahoo Sports, The Sun, Bleacher Report, and now even the official Barca website. Jason, it's an absolute pleasure and a delight to have you with us today. That's very kind. Uh, I think the pleasure's all mine. Uh, I'm an avid listener of yours and I enjoy every time when I listen. So thank you very much indeed for having me on. Of course. Um, I've been doing a bit of research, not that I need to, because obviously I follow your work for nearly a decade now. Um, but I just, you're obviously very passionate about Barca and everything that surrounds the club. Um, but obviously, I'm just wondering where all that passion came from originally. How, how did you get into it? It's, it's quite a long story, but I'll try and shorten it. Basically, when I was very young, when I was about six, I went to Spain for my first holiday with my family. And Barcelona shirt was the first shirt I ever had. And uh, Johan Cruyff, Johan Naiskins were the first posters I ever had on my wall with a, a Barca pennant. And I suppose I really had a love for the club, if I think about it, back then. Where I lived at the time was in East London. So when I was old enough to actually go and watch football, West Ham was the local team. But there was an issue surrounding West Ham much later in my life with my eldest son who played there, but he was bullied quite badly. And at the time, he basically walked out of the club. The following weekend, I was actually going to my first El Clasico, which was the uh, the 3-3 draw back in 2007. And from that moment on, I sort of said, OK, I don't really see it as switching allegiances because I do believe that Barcelona was my first love. 
but I was much more of an active follower of them from that point. So, and what a match to start with as well. Messi's first first hat trick, and it's been great ever since. We've had a wonderful time, haven't we, as Kules? Absolutely, it's been tremendous. It's been, I want to say, a fantastic decade, but actually, it expands to nearly fifteen or sixteen years now, which is which is superb. Um, you just mentioned there's something that I wasn't aware of. Um, obviously, you've been a football dad, and probably you still are. Um, how does that feel? Because I've got two young daughters here at home and although they're probably going to do ballet, etc., I'm training them to be footballers too. So how is that experience as a dad? How, how do you feel when you see your, your son on the pitch? I think it's very exciting. I've never been one of these dads that will be thinking my son's the, and the next David Beckham or whomever. I was just, I was proud. He's actually 23 now. Uh, he was 9 and 10 at the time. And he doesn't play any football anymore because of what happened to him at West Ham. But in terms of, I think most parents, when they got kids, whether they do football, you know, dancing, swimming, whatever, you're always proud of your children. I think some people are lucky that their children are outstanding in whatever sport or um, hobby they do. And some of them go on to do it for a living. I know a lot of my son's um, teammates are now professional footballers in the Premier League, in the Championship. Uh, I think the League of Ireland have got one or two of them. So it's nice to see them uh, doing well as well. It's just unfortunate for, for my son that he had a, a horrible experience at a professional club. Oh no, that's, that's not great to hear. But I mean, he's 23 now. I think he's got quite a good reason to be very proud of his dad. I mean, you've interviewed many high-profile stars such as Pelé, David Villa, Zambrota, Raul, Del Bosque, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, who surprised you the most when you met them? Oh, that's a tough one. I think probably Pelé, actually, because legend is a word that you sort of gets bandied around far too often nowadays, I think. But he is, the, you know, he's the god, isn't he? He's an absolute legendary player. But as a man, he was very, very humble. He was very willing to answer any questions that I put to him with no no issues at all. I think one of the things I find most frustrating now as a journalist is when you get to interview certain players, the PR people or, you know, club staff are surrounding them. And you, you can almost sense that when you ask a question, which, you know, may not sit well with them, they look for sort of coaching or someone to say, hey, no, no, don't, don't answer that. Pelé was absolutely the opposite way. It was like, sit down. How are you? Lovely to meet you. And, you know, for, for someone like him to say to me, it's lovely to meet me, I mean, that puts you at your ease straight away. And to me, that's a sign of a very humble, a very special person. And I, I had uh, 15, 20 minutes with him one-on-one. -on -one. I could have gone on for longer. He was quite happy to, to sit there for as long as I wanted. But obviously, his people had him down to do other things on, on the day. It was actually in Barcelona I interviewed him. But that was very special. That's a memory I'll treasure for the rest of my life. Of course. I'm, I'm full of admiration for you for actually being able to achieve that sort of caliber of interview. Well done to you. Um, now, would you say that football is too complicated these days then? Just picking up on sort of reading between the lines of what you just said. Um, is it becoming a huge business that is depersonalizing what people actually are like? I think it is. I mean, yes, there is a whole business surrounding it. But I think what we're also seeing now is a lot more of the players are sort of trying to, I don't want to say banish journalism per se, but obviously the, we know of the Players' Tribune where Piquet and others are going sort of directly. So they're, they're almost producing their own content nowadays where they can sort of feel they can speak more freely. I do speak to sort of colleagues of mine in various organisations and, and the one thing we all feel is that... 
I suppose the higher up you go, the more guarded people are. And there's a certain narrative that probably the clubs want them to follow. And therefore, you don't really feel you're getting an honest interview as such. You want to ask sort of quite gritty questions sometimes. You really want to get to know the human being as much as like the star player, if you will. And quite often, you can't really get to that. And it is frustrating because we can see these interviews sort of all over the web in, on various publications, and they're all a bit too samey. I think, you know, you've got to have been in the game a very, very long time, be very trusted by the clubs that, that you work with and for in order to be able to get an interview that perhaps gives you a lot more insight than a lot of which we see just at the minute. So, I mean, my I, I, liked, I wrote a book as well, and I like to, to, as I say, get under the skin of the interviewee and try and find out a bit more about it because I think as someone who's reading that interview, they will find that far more interesting rather than just sort of bland statements that get churned out day after day. Of course. Tell us a little bit more about your book then because obviously I've seen all your, your uh, no, I don't want to say promotion, I, th I guess it is promotion. You've been pretty much everywhere talking about the book before, you've posted in different social media and I'm really excited to actually have the chance to talk to you. How did the project come about and what is the book about? What was your experience like? Okay, well, the book's about an old Chelsea player from the 1970s called Alan Hudson. He also played for Arsenal, for Stoke City and for Seattle Sounders. He was very good friends with George Best. And a lot of people do say that he was probably one of, if not the most natural players that ever played for Chelsea. He was in there side in the 19, the early 1970s that were successful with beating Real Madrid in the Cup Winners' Cup, winning the FA Cup. He was, or he became an alcoholic. He was known as a bit of a womaniser. He only ever got two caps for England when people said he should have got 102. He, he was that good. And when you consider what the pitches were like in England, probably everywhere that long ago, I mean, they were like paddy fields. They weren't like the carpets that the players play on now. Very complex character, the sort of man that you either love or hate when you first meet him. I very much enjoyed getting on with him because he was he's a straight shooter. I like that. I, I know where I stand with somebody like that. And I got introduced to him by a mutual friend a couple of years ago, and we got chatting over a few meetings. And I happened to say to him, look, I know you've done books of your own, but has anyone ever written a book about you? He said, no. And I just said, well, would you mind if I did? And he straight away said, yeah, you know, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And he was as good as his word. And it sort of comes back to what I, the comment I just made in terms of being guarded. Alan was absolutely the, the opposite way. He let me into his life, lock, stock and barrel. I knew everything about him, everything about his family, the good points, the bad points. He had a car accident which nearly killed him in the 90s and he was in a coma for 59 days. There was all sorts of things. It was a very, very interesting story to write. It wasn't a bland footballer's biography. And I've been very, very lucky in the sense that the, it was my first book. I didn't know how it would be received. I didn't even know really if I could write a book. But the people that have read it have been gracious enough to email me or contact me and said they found it very, very interesting and, and not like the sort of books that they read nowadays. So for me, that's been a, a nice start point to some other part of the job I do. And I will be looking to do another book, uh, probably not in the next few months, but definitely I say within a year, I'd probably start another one. Well, that is really exciting. Um, if you are listening to this podcast, you can now tap on your app 
and we're going to put a link to whatever Jason wants to send you so you can buy that book. That seems incredibly excited. I think I know what I'm going to get from my wife on my next birthday if I'm good, which, you know, doesn't, doesn't always happen. Um, I was looking through your interviews as well and talking about someone who, in a way, thinks outside the box and does things differently. Um, I found out about Joan Laporta. I know that you traveled to Spain, Barcelona um, at the time, and he's definitely a very colorful character as well. Um, how do you feel about him not calling the shots at the Camp No anymore? I think he's an acquired taste, isn't he? Um, you sort of love him or you hate him. He's very polarizing in that respect. He was there, obviously, at the time when we had Ronaldinho, obviously, when Messi came through. And it was a very successful period with with Guardiola there. Um, I just think maybe he was ousted, if we look back at how that came about. You know, it's all, it's all internal politics and all the kind of stuff that I really detest when it comes down to election time. But then people had a chance to actually get him back in in 2015. I actually interviewed him the day before the elections and he was he was super, super confident that, that he was going to get in. And obviously, as it happened, he didn't. Personally, I quite like him, not because I interviewed him. I liked him before then. I think he's very charismatic, you know, quite a bit different, obviously, to Bud the Mayo. But, you know, if we look at the demographic at the club, you know, there was a lot of older uh, Goulet's season ticket holders. Uh, and they obviously believe that Bartomeu has got a, a lot more to offer than Laporta. Whether he'll run again in future, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it'd even be a wise idea. But from a personal perspective, you know, I, I was quite uh, disappointed when when he left or got ousted. So I, I would like to see him back there. But I don't think it's going to happen personally. He probably won't. I'm a, bit, a little bit with you as well. I think Bartomeu has not done very well in the terms of signings, in terms of popular signings as such. Obviously, in the last, I would say, five, six months with Coutinho and Dembele, he sort of has changed that slightly. But, you know, I think it's what you said. The older sources actually prefer to go in a more Nunista, which is Joseph uh, Nunez in the 1990s. And then obviously the continuation of that way of thinking, which was Sandro Rossell and now Bartomeu, they're pretty much all in the same ideology. And that's what the Camp Nou has selected. And, you know, that's that's what we need to go with. Now, with Bartomeu being in charge, um, there's been several changes. And the latest one, or one of the most important this year, was having Valverde as a manager. And the results sort of speak for themselves. But do you think... Valverde's Barca is too far away from Croy's philosophy, or do you see some similarities? What are your thoughts on that? I don't think you can say it's too far away from me. It's, I mean, obviously there's a change. I think people knew when Valverde was being spoken about that things were going to change, and that was perhaps why there was quite a lot of reticence as to his signing. It was still going to be Barcelona, but not the Barcelona that we know. But I think... You know, you have to, if you look at it from this position now and look back, there's no possible way that you can argue against what he's done as a coach. You know, whether it's been 4-4-2, whether it's been a more natural 4-3-3, whomever he's brought in, and by that I mean substitutions and just that the formations he's played, the personnel that he's used, on virtually every occasion, he's made something happen. He's got the desired result. And, you know, it's ridiculous that within sort of t nine, ten games, we could be looking at an unbeaten domestic season, potentially another cup win. And, 
we're still in play with the Champions League, you know, regardless of whether we get there. I mean, this is an incredible season that we're having. And I think he has to take all of the credit. He's got everyone enthused again. We've got Messi playing like we've not seen him for a while. Even people like Paulinho who've come into the side. And, and let's remember how most people were when that signing was due to be announced, 40 million euros. And people were thinking the sky was falling in. And you know, Goulet's a you know, notorious for being pessimistic anyway. But that, that signing, I think, was so polarising. But I think, again, it shows that here's a guy, he's a lot quieter than Enrique, but he knows what he wants. He's got the absolute respect of every player in his team, and now he has the respect of the fans. I, I can't. I, it really annoys me when I see people being critical of him and his style of play, because sure, this is a results business. Yes, I know Goulet's want Barcelona to play a certain way, but if he's got, like Athletic Bilbao yesterday, or Athletic Club, apologies, the first half yesterday was on the best first half of football I've seen for a long, long time. How can you possibly turn your nose up at that? You can't. I mean, I think in the podcast we've been very clear that, um, as you're saying, it's a results-driven sport. You want the team to play as well as they can, but I think that Goulet this year, and we've been talking about it for the whole year, is it's a work in progress, you know? I think progressively we've been getting better, and I think particularly in the last couple of games, I don't want to say we've reached excellence, because excellence is not something that you can, in my eyes, ever sort of achieve, because there's always something to improve, but certainly it is much closer to the dominant team that, that we want our Barca to be. Um, if you had to pick one, which one would be Valverde's greatest achievement? Oh, goodness me, that's a tough one. Um, I think I would just say, and I know people expect a lot of Messi, but I think, you know, the way he's got him playing, he's built the team around him. And I've not seen Messi this good since the very early days of, of Pep. And I think actually that's probably, you know, the, the comparisons now are always going to be about, well, it's not Pep Guardiola's Barca. But that, that, that's, the, that's the issue, isn't it? It's because they were a swashbuckling, all-conquering side, but they had the players much younger ages at their absolute peak. You know, Messi's now coming up 31, and he is still playing some of the best football of his career. And I think out of everything, I mean, there are success stories throughout, but if I had to pick one, I would say it's the way that he's, you know, got Messi on his side from day one allowed him to, you know, really dictate the play. And we've just had an interview, didn't we, with Messi just this morning where he's saying he's, you know, he's different now. He's the way he looks at the game. It's not about him being decisive all the time. He wants to bring the team into play. He still will do his runs and his slaloming runs and everything else. But he's more about the team than himself. And I think that, you know, credit for that should go to Valverde. Absolutely, totally agree. We talked about that in a previous episode and I really do think that Messi's achievement is second to none in world football and I think his maturity is adding to his skill and he's now becoming the leader that we all wanted him to be and in a way no one could even envision he was ever going to be this great so I'm all full credit to him. Now this last question um, is a little bit... um, I know that you deal a lot with Spanish media and this yep. seems to be dominating a lot of the headlines. So I'm just going to put it to you and really intrigue us to see what you have to say. Messi's leading the Pichichi yep. with 25 goals and Ronaldo's catching up really fast. He now has 22 after a very slow start to the season. Um, what do you think about the whole Pichichi scenario, the whole circus around it? 
well, I think you've just said the word there. It's a circus. It's a, it's a top scorer's award with, with the greatest of respect because I'm one of the few people that actually really quite like Ronaldo as well. I think he's a fantastic player. If Messi doesn't win the Pachichi but wins the league, who's going to remember who won the Pachichi in years to come? Do, do you know, it's, it's an individual over team award. I think there's far more stock in winning a league title or a cup than there is in just winning a top score. A top score award is a means to an end. You win a league title, it's shown your excellence across the entire season, both individually and as part of a team. So I think it's just to fill column inches, and I'm probably as guilty of that as everyone else because I still work for certain organisations and, you know, there's stuff that we have to put out there. But no, it's a top scorer award. Big deal. Yes. I didn't want to... I probably didn't ask the question really well. I didn't want to put words in your mouth, but I think for me it's an absolute no-brainer. What really matters in football is collective titles and luckily for us, Messi, but also Iniesta, Suarez, etc., are leading Barca to a fantastic season. Um, Jason, we could not be any happier with your contribution today again eternally grateful for coming on the podcast um a lot of our listeners probably came across your you and your work for the first time today so what is the best place for our listeners who don't really know you yet to follow your work please if they want to go on twitter it's at jason pettigrove if you want to look for me on facebook it's at jason pettigrove journalist and if you want to send me messages and interact i'd be more than happy to, to talk to you all that is fantastic. Also, Jason's details are an app, so if you tap on the app now, you'll find everything right there. Jason, have a great night. Bonne nuit. Thank you very much. Take care. That again is Jason Pettigrove. You can find him on Twitter, and of course you can find his book. We have a link for that in the show notes as well. And Frances, while we had Jason Pettigrove, that's a big name, we've got another big name to throw at our listeners today, and that is our show sponsor. We are excited, so excited to introduce today's show sponsor, Hims, a new wellness brand for men. Hims is one of the best ways to combat hair loss, and while you might not think that hair loss is just for older men, it can affect everybody, Frances. And now this is, again, me. I'm not going on the copy here. This includes who it can affect a World Cup winning Spanish midfielder and one of the greatest players that Barcelona have ever produced. Frances, my question for you then, can you imagine how much better Iniesta might have been if he had started using hymns all the way back in 2002 when he debuted for the first team and his hairline was already receding as he was still just a late teenager? Or better yet, how much more marketable would Iniesta have been over the years if he could have the way that Paul Pogba does his hair and all that fancy ways and even the way that that we're seeing Messi is his front little quaffed bangs get a little longer, that's just another facet of fooling the opponent. And I think Iniesta could have been even better if he had been using hymns all these years and had a flowing mane of hair atop his wonderfully World Cup winning, Champions League winning head. Well, he would absolutely look very different. Um, I think that when I saw him for the first time, he had quite curly hair. It was short, but it was quite curly. And that over the years has changed. But obviously hymns would have made that a little bit different. So you tell me, see, I, I don't even know if there's pictures available for this where you said he used to have curly hair. So would if he had had more of a, almost a Fellaini, the old man, you Belgian midfielder, would he had more of a Fellaini afro, you think, using hymns? He wouldn't have had that or even Puyol hair. It was much shorter. I don't know who to compare it to. It was a little bit like Coutinho, but with a bit of curls. Um, and he looked, he looked good then. But um, obviously things changed over the years. And I also figure that when the whole world went blonde, of course, with Messi and Neymar and everyone who was up and coming in fashion, of course, Danny Alves, they all went blonde. I don't think Iniesta would have done such a thing. 
absolutely not. He's much more simple than that. He's plain and simple, but obviously he doesn't have that much to play with now. So honestly, if we could go back in time, we would tell Don Andres about the way that Hims connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss. After a few questions, probably not asking if you ever won a World Cup, that's probably not on the, on the survey, a doctor will review your case and prescribe you. Then, doc, then products are shipped right to your door. So order now. Our listeners get a trial month of Hims for just $5 today, right now, while supplies last. See website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. Go to 4 slash Barcelona. And, of course, that connects you right to us. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash Barcelona. 4 slash Barcelona. And speaking of Barcelona, I think it's time for another edition of La Ronda de Preguntas, where we bring on none other than Eugenia Caroli. I feel like we don't even need to say hello anymore, Eugenia, because you're on so often now. <laughs> I'm a regular now. I just feel that if we didn't say hello, it would be really rude. So hello, Eugenia. It's great to have you with us. <laughs> Thank you, Frances. Thank you. I know, and I almost feel bad that I have to make now both of you wait as, real quick, want to go over some scores from this week, including Barca B and Barca Femini. First up, Barca B, a 1-1 draw with Lorca, who are in the relegation zone in the Segunda division. Goal by Marco Correa. While Barcelona had two-thirds of the possession, they were still outshot 18-11. to But they were playing without, speaking of important players, Carlos Alenia, who was on the bench for the first team. Alex Callado, meanwhile, came up from Juvenil A, as well as Alejandro Marquez, who came off the bench. And they both came from the Juvenil A squads, making their Barca B debut. Meanwhile, Marcus McGuane got his first Barca B start in the midfield. So I think all things considered, they still moved up to 15th place because they did get one point. They're still five points off the drop zone. And there's still more than 10 matches to play. So there's still a lot to play for. And I would expect Alenia back with them. That said, before I move on to Barca Femini, I do have a question for the two of you. And it's that I, I don't understand. And I know it's not all about Alenia, but... Why didn't Elenia even get off the bench for the first team in that second half where it really did feel like the match was over and Bilbao had, to a degree, kind of called off the dogs a little bit and Barca took their foot off the gas. And so Elenia doesn't play for Barca B and they only get a 1-1 draw against a relegation team and he also just sits on the bench. Instead, you put out Iniesta, who probably could have used a little more rest or even late on Andre Gomez, who again, yes, he had a good performance coming on against Chelsea. But still, I, I think Elenia sitting on the bench. Why isn't he used? He was even called up in the first place, and I, I did not expect him to play at all in that match yesterday, especially having such a, a such a strong backup this season, and that was completely demonstrated by, by Paco Alcácer, who is not getting that many minutes lately, and then he comes in and scores that amazing goal in, in, in the first 10 minutes of the match. Of course, I, th- I was thinking about this, and obviously... I'm very disappointed, first things first, really disappointed that Alanya didn't get a didn't get a nose in really. Um, and I was thinking about what, what could have caused it. And my conclusion that I've come in my own head, which I do sometimes, is the fact that Valverde just wanted him to be exposed to the experience of coming with the first team, being convocado, so being called up for the game and actually experiencing everything that goes around it. Um, he goes training pretty much on a daily basis and um, this is sporadic as well depending on what the game for Barca B is going to be but I think that because he's a Barca B player he needs the experience of being being part of the whole situation coming into the camp no and to be honest if you are called up and you sat on the bench just waiting to get in that could be served as motivation so that when you actually get the call up you're definitely ready it's either that or I've got no idea what just happened but that to me well I don't I- 
really, I don't really think that uh, being called up to the first team automatically means that you're going to be playing. Uh, it's, it's obviously a process, and there's obviously other players that are part of the regular first team, regular, like, are a regular part of the first teams, deserve minutes and deserve to play in a, in a match where, where you have uh, the opportunity to be inside because you don't have Luis Suarez, for example, or where Iniesta didn't start or Busquets is injured. So there are other players that are there sitting on the bench for the first team every every match every weekend or every every time there's a there's a match and it's a first come first serve thing obviously because when you have Paco Alcácer or Andre Gomez or Alex Vidal or other other or other team members that are there waiting for their opportunity all the time it's not that you're just going to come from the B team and then all of a sudden be on the pitch yeah I, I can see both those sides and make and make a lot of sense to me um I just do for the rest of this season I would hope that he does honestly, at this point, stay with Barca B so that he can help them navigate and not get relegated and stay in the Segunda Division so when next year he's promoted to the first team or even goes out on loan, that he's fully ready for that opportunity. Well, anyway, for the Barcelona Femini, speaking of 1-1 draws, they did the same against Sporting Huelva, goal by Tony Dugan, the English woman. Meanwhile, Atletico Madrid also drew 2-2, so while Barca could have taken over first place, they still sit in second place one point behind Atletico at Atletico Madrid. That 2-2 draw was actually with their hometown rival of Madrid CFF. For Barca to try to get back against Atletico Madrid in the table, they're going to have to wait, however, a few weeks as they now have both legs of their Champions League quarterfinals with Lyon for the rest of the month. And those games played six days apart from one another. And so the league for Barcelona, at least, is cut short and those matches are scheduled for different times. So it's a big contest against Lyon, who are one of the powerhouses in the Champions League women division. And so for Barcelona, I think there's still a lot to play for this season, but this is the time when they're going to have to play their best. Now for the bulk of La Ronda. First question, and it seems to be a difficult one, but one that we've been asking for the last six or seven weeks now. Alfie asks, is La Liga over? Or I Liga? <laughs> I get that question like 107 times a day. Um, I think we could pretty much say so, but uh, there's still nine uh, weeks to go, nine mat match days to go. And I think that the most important thing at this point, and I mentioned it last week, is to keep on conquering challenges. And right now it's not just about winning La Liga, it's about winning La Liga without losing any matches. So I think that uh, at... And for the players, for the fans, for the club, this is like a new challenge that nobody expected that at the 29th week of the of the season, eh, Barca would be at, at invicto, no? How they say it in Spanish. No games lost in, in 29 match days so far. So I think that this is something that is actually motivating the players to actually win La Liga without being beaten. And, and so I can totally see this league over. Frances, then even adding on to that, Eros asked, do you see us ending the season unbeaten in La Liga? And I know these are two different ideas, but it matters how the team is playing right now. Of course. Um, we discussed that in last week's pod as well. Um, I don't think finishing La Liga unbeaten matters really much. I mean, I understand Eugenia said last week that, you know, it is like a challenge that we need to chase, and I totally get that. But in my eyes, obviously, we've got nine matches left. Um, we are still alive in La Copa, but then again, that's only one match that we've got to play and hopefully we'll win that against Sevilla in the final. I think 
the most important point now is securing enough points and I really don't care too much as to when they're secured but in order to keep our freshest players fresh for the Champions League so resting Iniesta obviously making sure that Piquet can nurse his injury which doesn't seem to bother him very much and I'm delighted for that but obviously Busquets when he comes back from injury so I think that as long as we can ensure that our best players our key players our regular starters are available for Champions League matches. I think rotation in La Liga is perfectly fine. I mean, five wins and one draw um, are to be achieved in nine games, and that's ensuring and assuming that Atletico are going to win all of the matches, which I don't really see happening either. So for me, it's all about squad rotation in La Liga to ensure that we get the points and having a great challenge for the Champions League, which arguably is the biggest trophy of the season. James asks, Paco has played well in the time that he has played. He's been good this year. Would you want him to stay and keep the squad balanced? Or with Griezmann looking like he's going to come, would you just want to enhance the squad that way? I think that he's super necessary. Players like him are necessary, not just because uh, he's a great player. Uh, And I understand when you say that, uh, and when people say that he's... um, He's not a player to be benched, but actually for a top team like Barcelona or any other team competing at this level in La Liga and, and you know, in now in on April 21st, there's a Copa del Rey final, there's quarterfinals for Champions League and so on. You need a, a strong backup sitting on the bench for, for, in, for this part of the season, especially. You cannot just go with an amazing starting 11 throughout the season and then come to this point of the season when it when it's not going to be the, the first time that it would happen when players are absolutely exhausted and then things happen that we already have experienced in the past and we're not uh, very happy about, right? So I really think that Paco Alcázar is one of those key players that he's always ready to go out and whenever he does get the minutes, he's very effective as we saw yesterday against Atletico de Bilbao. Of course, fully agree with Eugenia there. I think... Paco's professionalism has been very impressive this season. Um, He was playing fairly well at the beginning of the year. He wasn't getting many matches, but whenever he was played, he was scoring, finding the back of the net and and making a contribution. Then for some reason, around November, December time, he sort of disappeared from Valverde's even even call-up, not even the starting eleven or making an appearance from the bench. He wasn't even making the bench. And um, he's kept his head down and he's the consummate professional and, you know, I am delighted that whenever he plays, he finds the back of the net, which he did on Saturday. And obviously Eugenia was at the camp now watching that. Um, Eugenia, I want to pose a question to you. Uh, there's been some rumors coming out of, I believe it's the Spanish, central Spanish media from Madrid, saying that Messi and Suarez would not really see Griezmann as an ideal teammate. Um, have you heard anything from the inside with that? Yeah, there were some rumors about that last week saying instead of uh, that Messi was telling the club instead of investing the money in Griezmann, invested on Dybala. Uh, that's something that was, you know, there was some buzz about it last week or a couple weeks ago. I don't, I haven't seen or read or, or heard much more about it uh, the last week. I don't know. It, I mean, the rumors there that I heard it. I heard it about Messi. I heard something about Suarez as well. You know, at the end of the day, Messi is a big influence on the decisions made by the club. And honestly, with the team, with the with the offense that Barca has right now for for a starting team, you know, with now with Coutinho, with Dembélé, it's. I think it's strong enough. And I don't really. The more. 
them that they played together. And I mean, the duo between Messi and Dembélé just gets stronger and stronger. And I just don't see an open spot for Griezmann in that team. Dan, how do you see that? Well, I, I think it goes back to the adage that you and I, Francesca, have preached since the beginning of the show that, you know, you need 11 to 14 starters on your bench if you want to easily be able to compete and not on your bench, but 11 to 14 starters. So that means obviously you'll have three or four players who would start in any other team in the world ready to go on your bench. And so that helps with rotation. But I, I think this is going to lead us actually into another question that Roman asked about midfield purchases destabilizing Iniesta, maybe making him leave prematurely, which you two actually, with uh, Frances, you and Deanna actually spoke about in last week's La Ronda. And for me, Iniesta being out of the squad, I mean, that's a huge amount of minutes right there that someone else is going to have to walk into. And I know Griezmann played a different position, but I think as we talk about Messi and his future at the club, it could be dropping deeper and deeper. And that's going to be questions I think that Valverde will have to reevaluate when everyone's in camp. Because again, if Griezmann is in the club and Iniesta is out of the club, that means that Barcelona is going to be looking a little bit different next season. And so I, I, I don't know, it's a cop-out answer, but I think it's too early to tell. It definitely is early to tell. Um, I want to separate both things. And, and basically, the importance of Iniesta in the club is out of question. He's been outstanding for the last 18 years uh, since he came into Alevina when my brother was playing there. And all the way up through now, nowadays, he's earned the right to decide his future and no one can deny what he has done for the club. Now, to suggest that he's been pushed out by someone, honestly... For me, it's nonsense. He has earned the right to decide his future. And at this moment in time, he's considering an offer. My understanding is that there's five different offers all coming from China and he's going to decide what to do. Now, I do know that before the 30th of April, he needs to reply to the club and say whether he's going to renew his contract or not. But I don't think... I honestly do think it's a personal decision as to what's best for himself at this moment in time and obviously long term because, you know, when you're 33, 34 years old, you have to be thinking about retirement. It, it's it's human nature. Um, he knows the way that Xavi left the club. He knows the homenaje, which is the tribute that the club prepared for him. And I think what Iniesta is doing is actually thinking, well, Xavi got all of that goodbye, farewell tribute. I want some of that and actually I could bank some money right here, right now. Um, I think it's all going to come to like the Camp Nou on Saturday. They were sort of chanting his name and saying Iniesta quédate, which is Iniesta please stay. But I think it's a very tough decision for a player that in my eyes should stay, but probably that's a bit selfish of me to say. Oh, Henya, I've got one for you. Well, we've got both from Taylor and Samuel. They would like to know the lineup to be fielded against Sevilla. Taylor is Iniesta, Rakitic, Coutinho, asking if that would be a good idea. And Samuel asks if Dembele, Rakitic, Busquets, and Coutinho, then moving forward after that, would be the best idea. Well, I think that if we ha- if we actually have a tough match ahead from the last remaining nine uh, match days, is actually Sevilla, especially in Sanchez-Pijuan, a stadium that has not come easy for Barca in the last few seasons. Uh, they always complicate it. They are in a very good moment of their of their of their season. They're actually doing really well. They're in the quarterfinals of Champions League. So uh, I don't. I think that anything if they're gonna um, if they're gonna use the regular players as Frances was mentioning earlier, we need to have our first our top of of the line players ready 
for Champions League. I think at this point of the season, especially considering his beginning of the season and we want him to be in shape, we want him to have more minutes. I think Dembele is an undisputable starter for the rest of the seasons in La Liga as well. And Coutinho should definitely play against Sevilla, especially since he cannot play in Champions League. So that is a card that it has to be played really, really well. And he has to be starting in the all nine games of the season, eh, hoping that he's well for, for all of them. He's a very, very effective player. His, his uh, performance yesterday against Atletico was absolutely amazing. I still don't understand how there wasn't a goal by Coutinho yesterday. He was he didn't have such a uh, such good luck yesterday, I would say. But because the energy was there, the talent was there, everything was there. He he could just didn't score, but he was unlucky. I would just say, and that, that is definitely a player that has to start. And I would well Busquets. We still have a couple of weeks with him out, and Iniesta. As Frances was mentioning earlier, I think he should definitely be saved for the upcoming matches because he has the experience that we need in order to make it to the Champions League final. Yeah, so it seems like we're all in agreement on that. As we wrap up another edition of the Barcelona podcast, bringing the hottest breaking stories from the Camp No. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon in Forza Barca. Buena nit, guys. Forza. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com